I want you to open your Bible to the book of Genesis and the book of Romans. We're just going to brief Genesis chapter 4, and then I want to make a few comments from Romans chapter 7. Now, in Genesis 4, we quote that or refer to that often. The statement is said that if you do well, and I like to think that one of the things everybody in here wants to do is to do well, to do well and not do bad. I mean, who wouldn't want to do well? Anyway, in our relationship with God in a spiritual frame of mind, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And then he says, if you don't do well, what's the problem? In Genesis 4, verse 7, what's the problem? He said, sin, sin lieth or couches. It's out there waiting for you. Lies at the door. And he said, his or its desire is for you. And he said, but you must rule him. Does your Bible say something like that? So the truth is that every human being that's ever been birthed into this world, everybody that's ever been born into this world, with one exception, have all been conquered, every one of us, everybody from time when 12 or 13, maybe 15 billion people minus one has been conquered by that sin. Who the Bible describes sin and the devil as the same thing, goes about like a roaring lion. He's looking for weaknesses. He's looking for flaws. He's looking for things that you're not guarding so he can come in and get an entrance and gain a foothold into your life. And there's nobody in history that hadn't had that happen to him. It's happened to everybody. The Bible said, all we like sheep have gone astray. There's nobody righteous. That there is nobody who is without sin in this world. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now that's common to us because the Bible refers to and deals with sin, well, since the Garden of Eden. When the devil came and tempted Eve and conquered and did all of that. From that time all the way through until it's over, until Jesus puts him down, throws him in the pit and ends his reign, he's going to be loosed on this earth to try to tempt, maneuver himself into our life so that he can rule your life. But the Bible said we should rule him, which means we can. I do not have to be dominated by sin. I'm around it. I've learned its ways. It's had its place in my life, but things should be changing because when Christ comes, he gives us a new and living way to live. And if you live that way, to, to put this in Genesis 4, when you begin to live on his terms, you begin to do well. And the more you do well, the less sin has a control in your life. And hopefully we come to the place where sin, as he says in Romans, sin shall have no dominion over you in Romans 6. Now in Romans chapter 7... Romans 7 and verse 23, Paul writes, But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity. And these words, to the law of sin. Law here can be related also to principle or the way something works or the way something functions and flows. It's called a law of sin. Now, I don't want to go into Romans 7 about that because that's a different message. But 
the law of sin is the principle of how sin works. Now, I want to title the message tonight, The Workings of Sin. Ever since I have started on Psalm 51 about David, and especially the first part of Psalm 51, where he said, I acknowledge my sin. My sin is ever before me, and it's all my fault. I have nobody to blame but myself. When sin comes on a man's life, it just keeps pushing down and pushing down, telling you that this is the way it's going to be the rest of your life. There's really no way out of this. I mean, everybody has their problems and pressures, and nobody can ever really escape. Sin does it. It'll talk to you like that, and you get to the place where you just learn to live with it, and you'll try to do the best you can with what you got, and never really know you can rise up and fight against it or resist it, no matter how many times you've heard about the cross It seems to have lost its meaning because that's the escape. It's the cross. And we're going to be put to the test and tempted. And we'll go to James 1 now for the message tonight. As he says in James chapter 1, you're going to face sin the rest of your life. You do not have to be defeated by it. You do not have the right to say, well, nobody's perfect, who can always? You have no right to say that because God doesn't say that. We cave in real easy. I'm convinced, and maybe I'm by myself, maybe I'm alone in this convincing, but I am convinced that we give in too easy. We allow too many things to dominate our mind and our actions and our choices and our reactions and actions. We We allow too much without realizing that that one thing we should really want to avoid in life is being an offense to God, of making excuses why he's not exactly right and we aren't exactly perfect, and letting ourselves do things that we shouldn't do. Talk, uh, act, things that we do we know we shouldn't do. You know, the Bible says he that knows to do right But he doesn't do it for whatever many thousand reasons he gives why he can't help it. To him, it is sin. And sin, as you know, is what separates us from God. It's what makes life less than it should be. It's what makes misery what misery is. It's sin. It leads to despair and hopelessness and grief and defeat. And those are not things that we're taught that should be in our life or that should dominate us, even though sin couches at the door and is waiting for its chance. Surely the more we're enlightened about the things of God, the more we see how vulnerable we have been in our life and how God has rescued us and brought us out of that and doesn't want us to go back and do it anymore. Go and sin no more. Didn't he say that? Don't let sin be your buddy. Don't justify its actions in your life. Jesus has delivered you from all of that. You have a will, and you're living in a world that's dark. If you want to sin, you can because you have a will. If you don't want to sin, you don't have to. You can resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It just depends on whether or not you really want to because it's so easy. The easiest thing anybody in this room has ever done is sin or be an offense to God. We've done it our whole life. James chapter 1, verse 12. 
Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. There's a whole message there. I just want to brief it. God identifies among many verses in the Bible that says, blessed is and thou art blessed if. Here's one blessing. Blessed is the man who resists and overcomes temptation. Now, the word temptation is a word that can mean either to do bad or to do good. The word parazzo, the devil is called the parazzo. He's the tempter. It just depends on the context. God can prove you. Use the same word. God can prove you, test you. He himself doesn't lure you or entice you to evil, but he doesn't prevent you from facing it either. And he is in such control of that that he said that he will not allow it to be bigger than you are. But you're going to be tested. Everybody in this room is going to be tested. It's a given in life that if you say you believe, you're going to be challenged by the devil as to whether you believe that. Jesus heard the words, if thou be the son of God, turn these stones into bread. I mean, after all, you have all power, don't you? I mean, aren't you Emmanuel, God with us? Do that then. Throw yourself down from this temple and so forth. Those were temptations. He never yielded to them, but they were legitimate temptations. We're all tempted too. Jesus said he was tempted in all points like we are. What we face, he faced. The things that bother you bothered him. In the days of his flesh, the Bible said, as a man, the son of Adam, as well as the son of God. In the days of his flesh, he faced the tempter, he faced the temptations, the same things that you face, he faced, but he never gave in to it. And he was able to be the champion of our salvation. But in this verse, in verse 12, he said, blessed is a man who endures the temptation to turn away from God to do things his own way. Blessed is a man who says no to the devil, who resists the devil, who has learned what he should do, didn't know it before, but he kept coming, he kept learning, he was hungry for the word, he wanted to be a disciple, so somebody taught him, and the more he was taught, the more he began to hold to that, and the less of a grip the devil could have on him. So as he began to resist the devil by heeding his word, the devil would lose his grip. And he said, blessed is the man, the ordinary man who sinned his whole life, but he came to the Lord and is growing and is learning. He said, blessed is the man who endures, overcomes and resists temptations. And it says, for once he is tried, now that word means approved, one who has been challenged, tested, has faced the adversary, did not give in, overcame. He said, once he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life. What does the end of the verse say that the Lord has given to whom? Those who love him. Could we say this? If a man loves God, if a man loves the Lord, he will resist everything that wants to turn him away from God. Does it mean that if a man loves the Lord, he will resist the devil? 
Well, think about it. If a man loves the Lord, he will fight the good fight of faith. He doesn't want to disappoint God anymore. He did with his whole life until God saved him. I got a message on repentance coming up, and I got one on on the wisdom of man versus wisdom of God. I guess getting away from here was good for me because now I'm loaded up. Sometimes a man repents because he's ashamed of what he did. He feels bad about his actions. I'm sorry I did that, man. And he repents because he wants to improve himself. Then there is a man like the Pharisee and the publican. You remember the Pharisee said, I thank you, Lord, I'm not like Catherine. Remember that? What did the publican do? He could not so much, the Bible says, as lift up his eyes. He felt so shame. I mean, he knew what kind of person he was. He knew what kind of choices he had made his whole life. He knew how he had lived. There's a time in your life when God approaches you and deals with you. There is nothing hidden. You may want to deny it, but you can't because it's right there in front of you. This is the kind of person you are. This is who you are. And the publican could not so much as lift up his eyes unto heaven. He was so ashamed of himself. You know why? Not because he had done wrong or said something wrong or offended somebody. But he was wrong because as he looked up to God, he was not worthy of God. Nobody that lived like him had a right to God. And all he could say was, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I've done it all wrong. I have offended you the most of all. And Jesus said that man went down to his house right He was made right. His heart was broken, just like David's. In his misery, he finally saw what his deepest problem was. I have offended God. Sure, I've done things wrong. I shouldn't have done. I drank too much. (laughs) But no, he said, I have offended my creator. I didn't even know he loved me or cared about me until he opened my eyes and I saw who I am and what I've done. If a man doesn't really repent before God, He'll just keep doing what he's been doing. I'm sorry. (laughs) Oh, man, I did it again. Lord, I'm sorry. Forgive me. But he'll do it again. And he'll do it again. And he'll keep doing it because he's taught somehow all he has to do is say, okay, I'm sorry. Ah, I shouldn't have done it. Lord, you know, I'm just doing the flesh. I'm weak. I'm sorry. And I'm not sure he's ever fully turned a corner. I'm not convinced. I don't believe anybody ever turns a corner until godly sorrow breaks your heart and until a man is like a little puddle before God and unworthy is in his sinful state. But see, that's what the devil does to us. He makes us think we're cool, we're all right, we're as good as anybody, blah, 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 until we finally meet God and we realize there's no good in us. Nobody is good. I mean, we're just a bunch of sinners and once God opens your eyes to see that, then there's a door open to the victory. If a man doesn't see his offense before God, he just keeps repenting for the same thing, and he never really does get the victory. But God will prove you. You all know that? God will prove you. Every one of us that come to the Lord, every one of us that say amen, you'll get your chance to prove that. You'll get your chance to be disappointed in yourself, or you'll get your chance to please God. You'll get your chance. Everybody does. 
God did prove Abraham. The Bible says in Genesis 21 that God tempted. You know, God did tempt Abraham. That doesn't mean he tempted him to sin. God cannot be tempted to sin. Nor would God ever lead you to a place so you would sin. He will lead you to a place where you can sin. You can either cave into it or you can overcome it. But God would never take you to a place that he will not keep you. Because didn't he say, no temptation has taken you, but such as is common to man and God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you're able. But will with the temptation provide a way of escape. How many times did he say in verse 13, how many times has the word tempted you? Four times. I mean, it's a big deal. Maybe I'm the only one thinking like this, but we make light of this. This is not a big deal in our life. You know, that every day he's there, the devil is there. So is God. Every day the devil is trying to get his grips on you. God is there to keep you. It's up to me, my choice. Verse 13, he said, let no man say when he is tempted that I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. We can never say that what we're going through, what we're facing, or the situation you're currently in, if God hadn't allowed that, we wouldn't have had the problems that we have, or we wouldn't have sinned, or I wouldn't have fallen apart. You can't say that because you know what to do now. God has taught you. This is the way. Walk ye in it. Now, here comes a situation. It's not convenient to walk. Well, you've got to walk. You've got to hold on to that plow. Trust the Almighty that what he said he will do, hold fast, endure, and overcome. Otherwise, if you give in and you cave in, sin still dominates you. Whatever Jesus did isn't working for you. It could. But we give in. We cave in too much. We give up pretty easy sometimes, and we let sin, really do let sin have dominion over us. But it should not, and it should never be that way. You see, what did Jesus say to Peter? He said, Simon, the devil has what? Desired you. Why? That he may sift you as wheat. He's not getting a hold of you because you've done something wrong. This is one of the normal parts of, of life is for him to come. He is a roaring lion. He is the tempter. He comes to everybody. He came to Jesus. He, so you're the son of God. So you're the son of God. Huh? Well, let me see. Did you do a miracle then? He'd do that same thing to you. Not that you're the son of God, but that you're a professing Christian. And how many times is it easier to blow your stack, to erupt in anger, or to let somebody have a piece of your mind? Listen to me. How many times is it easier to gossip, backbite, or bear a tail than it is to hide that thing and just leave it alone? What's the temptation? To get it out and tell somebody, to get on the phone, what you hear? Oh, you hear, oh, really? Do you think it's okay to do that? We've been taught this, I think I said 25 years ago, that's one sin that I don't know will ever stop in the church. I don't know that it ever will. But it will stop with somebody, because not everybody's going to do that. 
There'll be a lot of people hurt by it because the devil, that's what he does. Why wouldn't he do that? He finds people he can use all the time. They've heard the same thing you've heard as long as you've heard it. It doesn't mean they're willing to do what he said, but they have certainly heard it. A man is tempted because, well, that's how sin works. Let me talk about how sin works beginning in verse 14. This is what I really came to say tonight for the next few minutes. How's that? Verse 14. But here's how this temptation thing works. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away by what? And what do lusts do? It's like conception. Let me give you this tonight. Sin in three phases. Just like salvation begins with the new birth, which is the beginning of a new life, and then it comes to a life that is lived, we call it salvation, and it is consummated with the resurrection and going to be with the Lord. Well, the devil's workings are threefold also. One is the conception of sin. Conception, conceived. The Greek word simply means pregnant. It means to have conceived. Now, in a spiritual sense, you take that. When the devil is able to locate you, find that opening in your life that you're not shutting that particular door. Maybe some besetting sin, some weakness in your life that you keep caving into. He knows what it is, so he keeps attacking that thing. He keeps coming at you. He knows your life. He's ruled you all your life, most all your life anyway. And so he comes at you. Just like Jesus said to Peter, he said, the devil has desired you, Peter. He wants to sift you like wheat. He wants to throw you off course. He wants you to start thinking with your mind, just like Eve was beguiled in her mind by the devil's subtlety. He wants you to be beguiled. He wants you to think like he thinks. He wants you to think that you can't. He wants you to think it's too hard. He wants you to think that nobody can live this way. He wants you to think that way because then you'll quit trying. And once you quit trying, you're meat and potatoes for the devil's table. And you got to resist the devil or he stays around. He said, Peter, I have prayed for you. I prayed for you that your faith won't fail. And we all know the, the story that Peter failed, but the good thing is that he never stayed failed. So even though sin does get its moments with some of us, it doesn't mean it gets to stay. Because if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Here I stand tonight knowing that I'm vulnerable. Everybody in here is. I'm vulnerable. There are some things I've been fighting for a long time, just little personality things, little things that you just allow, and you, they linger, they hang around like a little something, and it's kind of funny sometimes. You tolerate it, you put up with it, and it's sin. You know why it's sin? Because God has convicted you in your heart that you shouldn't do that. You have said, oh, I don't... I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't, I, I, I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't go there. I shouldn't listen to that. But you do it anyway. Because it's not a big sin. It's just a little sin. 
And it just comes in, and all it needs to do is get you to think it's no big deal, and it just gets a hold. Gets a little grip. Put your finger wherever you are and turn to Ephesians 4. And look at verse 27. Ephesians 4 and verse 27. See, sin comes sometimes no more than a thought. Just a thought in your mind. You see somebody that's not like you, as Jeff was talking about. And you cannot hold back a comment. Look at that trash. Look at that. Well, I wouldn't be seen. I wouldn't go to a dog fight. I wouldn't go to a rooster fight. And I've been to one of those. But I wouldn't go to a rooster fight dressed like <laughs> Do you think that's okay? Let me ask all of you. Do you think it's okay to do that? Is that an innocent statement without any? Or is it wrong? Is it wrong to violate anything that your conscience has been trained to live by? Isn't it wrong? I mean, the, the Pharisees who were going to stone that woman in John chapter 8, they weren't church boys. They picked up a stone to stone a woman, and Jesus said, whoever among you is without sin, throw the first stone. And the Bible said they dropped their rocks. They let go of them because they were condemned by their own conscience. Everybody's got one. And even though we have enlightened consciences, that is, the, the Word of God has given us a better and a more correct way to think, it doesn't mean we're ruled by it because we still violate it. Oh, oh, come on. You're, you're being too, you're being narrow. Oh, little stuff like that. That gives you this license or this liberty to keep on doing it again, doing it again and again. Without realizing God doesn't want you to act like that. God doesn't want you to talk like that. God didn't save you to live like that and make those kind of excuses. God wants you to be holy, doesn't he? And some of the activity that we allow in our life has nothing holy about it. It's wrong. I think once our eyes get open and we see God, I'm doing what I used to do what I was before that day of salvation, I'm still doing it. You know why? Because he's not the focus of your life. He's not the reason you're living. It is amazing how man convinces himself that he's got a better way than God. Or how man can convince himself, reason within himself, very logical, reasonable thinker, and he can play down a whole lot of this holiness stuff because, well, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think anybody can live exactly the way God wants them to. I don't think anybody is perfect. That's his wisdom. That's what he thinks is okay to do or a way to live. And he excuses his sins and his sinful ways. And he dismisses himself from any kind of judgment because, come on, that's why the Bible says that no man by his own wisdom can know God. And man's loftiest ideas and thoughts, his greatest designs, how smart man is. Look at the modern church. Man is, that's it. That's what he made. That's the product of his wisdom. All of its mechanics and all the stuff about it, it's man-made. 
the Bible speaks about the time will come and men don't want to live by what God says, but they want to live by what man says. You know, they came to Moses and said, look, don't speak to us about him. We want to hear what you have to say. We're, we're afraid of him. That's what they said in Isaiah's day. Get, don't speak to us about the Holy One of Israel. Why? But our conscience is killing us. Man, I can't do anything without knowing in my heart I shouldn't be doing this. My conscience is hurting me. In your human wisdom, Almighty One, talk to me. Tell me I'm all right. Just tell me I'm okay. In all the mechanics of sin, everything that turns a man away from God is behind all of that. And people sit there and listen to that. They begin to reevaluate God, his word, and themselves. Next thing you know, everybody's okay. You know why? Because nobody's perfect. I mean, after all, we're here, we're trying, aren't we? I mean, at least we come to church. Don't we go to church? Well, yeah. I mean, I mean if, if anybody's going to heaven, surely we are. And that's what man's wisdom is taught me. I've got to save the rest of that for another day. But it's killing the church. We convince each other that we're all right. We do the same things. We listen to the same stuff, talk about the same people. So therefore, you know, well, if they're going, I know I'm going. If they're not going, I don't know. We just want to make ourselves comparable to each other, that we're all alike and we're all okay. I don't know who taught us that. I think religion taught us that. Maybe we watched our parents or we watched church folks live in a way that they live and we said, well, I can live like that. I mean, they don't have to do anything to live like that. We began to live that way and we realized in ourselves we couldn't hear a message from God without feeling about something. We get so ingrained in sin that we don't want to hear what God says. Can't you preach anything else? I'm tired of hearing the same old, same old. Of course, I'm thinking, if you would turn your life totally over to God and just enjoy each moment we get to meet, just enjoy it. Enjoy every day of your life. You see, just a little time every day just to say, Lord, I want to thank you. Keep me focused on you every day. Just keep me in tune with you every day. Every day. Don't let me get by with anything, Lord. Make me to know your ways. I don't think you ever get tired of hearing the word. I don't. When you can stray away from this word and look for something else, something more exciting, something more, and you're getting into something that man has designed and not something that God has designed. And though there is pleasure in sin for a season, at the end it's death. Amen. Amen. But back in that 14th verse again, he said, when sin has conceived, when this personality trait that we are all known by, you know, he's goofy. She's really strange. Boy, he's hard-headed. Whew, don't say that around her. You know what? Why should we be known like that? Because that's our personality. Do you think God wants to deal with all of that and change it? Well, he does. 
Because none of those kind of things please God, do they? They really don't. None of that kind of stuff pleases God. He's not happy with that. That's why we're chastened. That's why sometimes we find ourselves on our back, looking up or on our face, looking down. God says, I'm not going to have that in you. I didn't save you to let you go. I'm going to be on you like the proverbial duck on a June bug. And again, I don't think you know what that means. But you're not going to run around all your life and remain as you were. I've committed myself to your salvation. I love you. Love is a commitment. Lifelong commitment. And while we're not perfect, he is. And he's not going to allow us to just do our own thing. He's going to deal with us. And if he has to make us miserable every day because of the weaknesses of our flesh, he will. But something is going to turn us back. But the first phase of sin is conception, the thought, the idea. Look in 1 Thessalonians. Would you look over there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3? You see, every man is tempted, the Bible says. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away. You remember that he, we just said that in verse 14? Every man is tempted when he is drawn away. Now, let me ask you a question. What draws us away? Something the devil tempts us with, doesn't it? <laughs> it is. He draws us away. He just lures us away. What the devil does is appeal to our flesh. He doesn't appeal to spiritual matters. He appeals to your flesh. Alcohol, maybe drugs of some sort. Maybe your anger, nobody's going to talk like that to me. I'll tell you one thing, I'll hit them right in the mouth. He appeals to that. He knows you're like that. I'll hit him in the mouth in Jesus' name. I'll whip you in Jesus' name if you get in my way. I'm going to beat you up in Jesus' name. Now, you laugh because that, that doesn't work. Well, how many times do we do that? We may not hit them physically, but we do with words. How many times have we offended each other with words or deeds? Jesus said, if you offend the least of these, you've offended me. Everything goes back to him. The whole purpose and reason for living is Jesus. The only thing that's ever right is doing what he said. The only thing is right. If man says something else, oh, man, that's the greatest idea I've ever heard. We ought to do that. Look what we can do. We can incorporate and have this, this, and that. That's all of man. Well, that's, it works, doesn't it? I'm not talking about pragmatism. I'm talking about what is of man. There is a way that seems right unto man, but the end of those ways are what? Death. You know what your Bible says? Would that mean that if all the designs of men that he's trying to do something for God and, and do all of this for the Lord and build all of this for the Lord and, and all of these things, when he's trying to do all of that, so look what we've done. You mean to tell me that's death? See, you don't want to admit that. I'll admit it for you. It is death because it's not what he said. See, we leave that out because man tends to lean to his own Lust, is that in verse 14? His own lust, does it say that? Lust doesn't have to always be about sexual things. People can lust for food. Can't they? 
There's a lot of things that can draw you away, that lure you away from God and lure you into flesh. Sensible, reasonable. Come on, man. What did Paul write in 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 5? He said, when I could no longer stand it, he said, I had to send and find out about your faith, lest what? Lest the tempter has tempted you. Tempted, we're all tempted. But what is implied here, lest the tempter has successfully tempted you and drawn you back to where you used to be or drawn you away from God. He said, if he did, all of our labor, all of our work is in vain. Nobody profits from it in the end. Whoa. And I might be the only one in here that's bothered by that because I believe that. I need to know about your faith. That thing we've been talking about for 30 plus years. Or perhaps the tempter, the parazzoer. The tempter came to Jesus, the same one. He comes to you too. Perhaps the tempter has enticed you. That same word at the end of verse 14. Maybe the tempter has enticed you. Maybe he's made sense. Maybe something he's drawing you to is sensible. Why don't you leave her? She's not good for you. She's a drag on your life. How will your career ever take off and, and be good if you stay with her? Get rid of her. I mean, for the Lord's sake, get rid of her. The devil talks like that. And you read, God hates divorce, and people do it anyway. Christians do it anyway. That has no bearing on what professing Christians do about something they don't want to overcome and deal with. They just get out. Because that's the easiest thing to do in life is get out and quit. Without regard for what God thinks about it or what God says about it, we just do it. Because that's the way sin works. It takes the focus off of God, and it puts it on what's best for you. I don't like this. I don't want to go there. I like to have a little drink. Listen to it again in, in verse 5. He said, I'll put it in my words. If the tempter has tempted you, if he has successfully drawn you away, and you're going back to where you were, there is no reason for us to have church. Because it will absolutely do no good at all. If the devil rules in your life and he controls you, nothing's going to happen here. Now, he didn't say it that way. But I would say, if the devil has tempted you, what? All of our what? Help me. Somebody help me. All of our what is in vain? Labor. Labor. Now, I don't want to make it too personal, but let me ask you this. Do you think what I do, what these men doing, is a form of labor? I ain't sweating. <laughs> Is it? Does it not say count them worthy of double honor who labor in the word and doctrine? Is it possible to labor in a situation that's dead? And when it's over, nothing good came from it? Maybe one dubious convert, maybe two, I don't know. That's God's business, not mine. I leave that up to him. I know what I'm supposed to do, and I do it. In season. What's that other one? Thank you. Out of season. You know why you do it? 
You do it as unto the Lord. Amen? Are there disappointments? Well, of course there are. Are there challenges? Yeah. Are there moments? Yeah. And why do you do it? Because as Paul said, I am compelled. Woe is me if I preach not the gospel. What if I don't want to hear it? You preach it anyway. Believing it, this is not a vain thing we're doing. God's going to make it work. Sin tries to get in and get its grip in your life. In these boys' lives. Turn on the computer and see what you can look at. Look how many racy challenges, stations you all can go to. Look how much trash you can watch. Whoo, there's no limit, they tell me. Is that a temptation? Is it a temptation to want to look at that? What if I told you that one of the major problems professing Christians have as a percentage is pornography? See, you might not believe that, and yet a whole bunch of you in here might be hooked on it. I don't know. I do not know. God knows. But I know when you get into that realm, that seedy, dark place, and you start watching that stuff, you will lose spiritual interest. I promise you. Things will go dark. Your conscience used to be alive and screaming at you. Turn it off. Get out of there. But you keep allowing yourself to do it. And sin begins to dominate. Your conscience gets a little quieter. It gets a little quieter until it doesn't talk anymore. It gets seared. It gets seared with a hot iron, as they say. And then you begin to indulge yourself. And it opens the door to other things. Alcohol is the same way. I'm just going to have a beer. We're just getting together out and we're going out and fish and trip. Let's have a couple beers. You think that's all right? For men to get together and Christians to get together and drink beer with each other? No, you should drink it by yourself. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I wrestled with that years ago in Australia. I remember thinking I was in an airport in Nandi down the Fiji Islands, way down in the South Pacific. And it was when in this place, I hadn't had anything to drink. I was late. It was a long trip. But I was in this little, I guess it was an airport. It just looked like a room with a counter with about 100 people in there waiting to get on this airplane. And I remember I was so thirsty. I was so dry. I thought, I'm going to have to do something. I don't know what language everybody's speaking. I don't know if I should point or ask. Maybe I could drink one of those little green bottles of beer. I used to drink it before I got saved and loved it. But I realize now that's off limits for me. You know why? Because if you saw me do that, you might think it's okay for you to do that. And if I make you stumble, I have sinned against you and I've sinned against God. Secondly, I don't need that. Iced tea is better anyway. There is no need in my life. So here's the point. The devil can't use that anymore. He can't use that kind of stuff anymore to tempt me. I remember thinking, just as surely as I bought a bottle of that stuff so I could live and not die. You know how the devil talks. I'm sure as soon as I opened, held the thing in my hand to start drinking it, I am sure somebody would say, Brother Hamilton. 
<laughs> you know, you're not as big a shot as you think you are. I don't have to be a big shot. Just, have, just a little shot recognize who I am. Brother Hamilton, what are you drinking? That's all it would take. You cause somebody to stumble. See, the more you begin to realize that things you used to do, you don't need to do that anymore. You don't need to go that direction anymore. Every time you do that, you limit the devil's occupation. He can't come in anymore. He can't put that seed in there anymore. He can't take control of your life anymore. He can't keep you there. See, every man is tempted when he is drawn away. Look at that website. Man, is anybody around? Oh, man. Make that phone call. What, do they still have phone calls before you talk to nasty women? Yeah. Just make a phone call. Because something in you is vulnerable. Something in you is what the devil comes at you with. Everybody's got something. Everybody's got something. There's something in there. Sometimes it's just being lazy. But there's something. And it occupies you. It's couching at your door. And the devil uses that to draw you back. And what happens to you when he draws you down? <laughs> oh, man. You come to church the next day after you did that, and what happens? Killing the spirit just kills it. Sin just kills it. Just kills it. Man has to have a drink, has to do a drug, has to watch a, a website, make a phone call, or he has to get mad and get revenge and get even. Those are real sins. That stuff has been in him all along. And if you don't deal with it, if you don't rule that, it says in Genesis 4, 7, if you don't rule that, it will master you. Until here you are as a Christian with no testimony and people who know you well know that, oh, just don't say that around him or her. Don't do that. Don't go there. Ugh. And you begin to accept that. It's a seed. The devil just plants a seed. Turn to John 13. In John 13, he said in verse 2, this is at that last supper, they call it. What does it say in verse 2? The devil having now put into the heart of Judas, Simon's son, to do what? Now, folks, the thought of sin, the enticement to sin is not sin. It's a temptation. Are you with me? Having a bad thought pop in your mind doesn't mean you've sinned. The devil wants you to dwell on it, think about it. And if he can, he'll get you to, he'll try to blame you for thinking like that. And it wasn't your thought. He put it there. He works on the mind. That's why you have to wear the helmet and guard your mind and have the mind of Christ and get a renewed mind. All those areas he comes at you with, you've got to start shutting those doors. That's the way it works. That's the way it works. And if he can entice you like that, if he can draw you that way, he certainly will. He said about Judas, the devil put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Now, can the devil do that? Now, while Jesus was talking and going over some things, what was on Judas's mind? Betrayal. Because there's one thing that meant more to Judas than Jesus, and that was silver. That was his weakness, money, making more of it, getting more of it, having more of it, planning your life around your money. If I have money, look what I can do. If I have money, look who I am. 
And yet, as you know and I know, money has never, ever made anybody spiritual. You can't buy spirituality. Money cannot do that. Money can corrupt you. Money can betray you. The riches of this world can be very deceitful because that's what sin is. It can never make you spiritual. But see, when you're in that temptation mode, you're in that zone the devil draws you into. He puts that seed in your heart. If you had just 30 pieces of silver, man, you look at some things you could do. You deserve that. I mean, you've been walking around all evening. Come on, man. And what does it say happened over in verse 27? What did the devil do to Judas once he entertained that thought? He entered in. That brings us to second phase of sin. First is conception. That's when sin's seed is laid in your life. Once it's in there, second phase is growth. It begins to growth and establish boundaries. Sin and the waves of darkness begin to establish themselves in your life. Your thinking, your attitude, how you manage your life or don't manage your life. We can see it in how you take care of yourself or don't take care of yourself. How you treat others or how others are mistreated by you, it it doesn't matter. The devil knows that if he can come in and draw you away and entice you, he can get a hold in your life. Remember Ephesians 4, 27? You don't have to turn to it. Don't give place to the devil. Because when the devil gets his grip, he comes in, he just begins to mold you into an image that he has for you. And the image that he molds, the kind of person he makes out of you, is the kind of person God must judge. You can't live like the devil and expect to go to heaven, can you? You can't profess to be God's person and then live like the devil. You're two different worlds, two different kingdoms. You got darkness and light. You're either one or the other. You can't be halfway. Jesus said if you're halfway, he'll vomit you out. You're either in or you're out. You're either all the way in or you're all the way out. Because if you're trying to be in but you're still out, you're lukewarm and he said he'll vomit you out. That's what sin does to us. Makes you unable to take a stand, unable to resist because it, it's vague. It's something is just not right, and he just turns you away. Let me ask you a question. When the Bible said the devil draws you away, what does he draw you away from? When you are enticed and tempted and you're beginning to fail and you're being drawn away, what are you drawn away from? I mean, you can take it home with you. You can think about it when you get home, but what's he drawing you away from? Listen, if the devil is trying to bring you to where he is, then where you were is not where he wants you to be. It had to be something to do with God. And if he can talk you out of God, didn't he say to Eve, hath God said? Is that what he meant? Wow, you must be awful smart to know more than, you know, you know everything. You really think God meant that? You really think it's really wrong for you to do this or that? You know, is that a big deal? 
Let me tell you something. Everybody that God brings to him, he wants to remold you, doesn't he? He wants to make you into the kind of person he wants you to be, because you're not right now, but his work coming to church, hearing the word, begins to be the foundation for the kind of person he wants you to be. He wants to change you. And the devil wants to keep you where you were, because it's easier not to put that effort. I just relax, don't do anything, hold back, you're okay. The devil wants you to do that. It's never been easy through history. And for those who have lived long enough to say it, it's never been easy in life to successfully resist the devil. But every man that set himself, man or woman, whoever has set themselves to the task of overcoming and not giving into that anymore, I am tired, I'm not going to go through that again. You won't. Like that preacher one time, nationally known preacher, I don't know if he's still alive or not, this was years ago, on the radio one morning, I was at McDonald's, I remember hearing this, where I was. He said there was a time in his life he had a problem with pornography. Well, I'm thinking, you? Oh, it's common as dirt, apparently, from what I've heard. But he had this problem. He said even though he wouldn't buy this stuff, but he'd be in airports, the guys would be looking at that, and he'd be looking over at it, you know. He'd be holding another magazine, but looking at that one. He said there was something about it. And the Lord dealt with him. However God spoke to him, stop doing that or else. And that was real. He saw how it weakened his character. It weakened his life. It made him a hypocrite. Made him a hypocrite. He wasn't even honest. He would preach against this stuff, and then he would do it. Like the homosexual preacher that another state good distance away from here preached against homosexuality, and he was involved in it. See, how do you do that? It's sin. You learn how to do it. You can act one way and it's not even real. It's dishonest. He told the Lord, this preacher did, he said, I see what I'm doing and I see how that's offended you. These are my words. I don't know exactly the word, but he said something like this. He said, I will never again. I make a vow, a vow, a V-O-W. That's the highest form of commitment you can make in this life. I vow to you, O oh God, I will never look at that stuff ever again. If a magazine or a book has a chance that an article is about that, I will not read it. I will not look at it. I will turn my head away from it from this day forward in Jesus' name. And he said, at that moment, the devil lost his grip in that area. He said, I no longer grieved over that. I no longer failed to that. I no longer yielded to that. I begin to get free. But it takes something like that. Sometimes you have to say, I'm not going to do that ever again. I will not listen to that. I will not talk about that. If ever again I have anything to say, I will go to the source and I'll speak straight man to man, face to face. I am going to get over this. I'm going to overcome this. Something in your life like that. Where the devil has always just trashed your life and trashed other people, you say no more. No more. Living for Jesus is worth whatever effort we have to make. And we're going to make it. Turn to Second Peter.
chapter 2 and verse 18. I liken this to modern day religion. There's more in 2 Peter 2 than just the two verses I want to read, but I likened the dismal condition the church is in today, the modern church, the end-time Laodicean church that thinks it's doing well, but it's naked, miserable, wretched, and poor, and so forth. Here's some of the things that it says about such a church. Verse 18, chapter 2. He says, For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. Let me get this another translation. For uttering loud boasts of folly, they entice with licentious passions of the flesh, men who have barely escaped from those who live in error. Verse 19, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a man, to that he is enslaved. Let me ask you a question. Could a man be living in sin and preach a gospel? He sure can't. Well, could a man be living in sin and people get saved? He can't because God doesn't save through man. He saves through his word. God honors his word. It profiteth a man nothing. The hypocrite gets his reward. Now, he gets praise and honor for the brief time he's in this earth. The pleasures of sin are for a moment. But they end up in disaster. Growth is what we're all about. The measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. And I'm beginning to see more and more that in the midst of our growth, we have to be constantly reminded of what's right so that we can avoid what's wrong. He that knoweth to do good. Teach me righteousness. Righteousness are God's right ways. If a man's ways are not in harmony with God's ways, they're wrong. Would you agree? I hope you do, but it'd be wrongness. <laughs> the motions of sin, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7, the motions of sin were at work in his life. In his affections, in Galatians 5, the word motions of sin are the word affections, passions. You see that in a center column of some of your Bibles. Passions of sin, the luring, the enticements of sin. It never stops. The curiosity of what is going on, what somebody said, or wonder what. Well, boy, I wonder. Well, that movie's got a lot of bad words in it, a couple of really bad scenes. Yeah, but the story's good. All right. That's between you and your heart, your conscience. But there's something about when a man's relationship with God begins to prosper. The one thing that is evident is that sin begins to lose his grip. Man begins to say, unto you, O Lord, I will not do that again. As David said, I have sinned against you and you only. I've hurt a lot of people, but I've sinned against you. I admit my sin. I ask you to forgive me of my sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. How you grow, folks, your growth is your character. How you act, how you talk. Let me add this to it. Whether you worship or not, whether you want to praise or not, 
Let's face it, we're all learning. We've all come to this conclusion. Everybody in this room tonight and maybe all the rest of us have come to the conclusion that church is not necessarily a time of worship. If we come together to hear the word, but we don't necessarily come together to worship God because we don't do that much. I mean, we a little bit. Every now and then we get loose. As I prayed before I got out here, something is lacking. Are the motions of sin at work here? Maybe it's in a marriage. Maybe it's something we're giving into that's just killing us. It's just killing us. Killing the spirit. We had the most robust praise, as much as I can remember, anywhere until 1990, we had a split. A little split. And it never has recovered from that. And it's not because all the praisers left, because most of the praisers stayed. But it was the beginning of some of this stuff. The church we were in, in Indiana, the church I came out of before I came here. In a Christian church, the disciples of Christ, denominational deadness, and the liberal church of liberal churches, the system was, when a bunch of us got saved in, in 1968 for the next two years, we added so many new people to the church just from going out and knocking on doors and witnessing and evangelism, exuberance. The church split because of exuberance. They would come sometime just to hear us sing back then and worship and carry on. And then the preacher who had said from the pulpit, he didn't believe he ever had the right to get married. One day he announced he was going to marry a girl, a girl that I grew up with a year or two behind me in school. I went to him and I said, brother, brother Moses, I said, didn't you say you couldn't do that? I mean, this is not going to work. I didn't know all the mechanics about divorce and remarriage. I didn't know really what I believed about, but I didn't think he should do that. Next thing you know, he started preaching against me in the church and sermon. He'd whack at me every now and then. That's why I left. One of the reasons. And you think, how do you do that? It's enticement. You get lured into something. You start rethinking your position. Well, now, wait a minute. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. And the moment he did that, the praise died. People quit. This is the truth. They quit getting saved. We didn't maintain all of our members. Some of them left. It's just like some of the stuff that Jeff talked about the other night. We begin to look down on each other, begin to judge each other. And we get together sometime and do this. If you don't think it kills church, I've already been there twice. I know what it does. It's a killer because it's sin. And as long as it keeps going, like a Pac-Man, as long as it keeps going, it keeps killing until the interest begins to wane. And when interest begins to wane, you begin to back away a little bit. This is all the way sin works, the motions of sin in a person who will allow those motions to take place. And your growth is under the third phase, death. It kills you. 
The wages of sin, Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is what? Death. Because the devil is the one who is in a corner somewhere laughing. You were easy. You were easy. All I had to do was just crank up your temperament, crank up your fears, crank up your lust to have and to be and to be noticed and admired and to be looked up. All I had to do was just crank it up and make you think more highly of yourself than you should. All I had to do. And you gave into it. And if whatever spirituality was trying to get into your life, shut down. I think, hopefully this year, there will be a lot of people looking for a garden. Not to raise vegetables in, but that Gethsemane where you can go and deal with God. You personally. Nobody else, just me and the Lord. Turn off your phone if that's possible. I don't know that you can. Do they still have off buttons on them? Everybody's got one. I walked down the aisle of a plane in Miami, Florida, yesterday afternoon. Walked down an aisle, you know, waiting to carry my bag, and I just checked in every row, except for one row, there was at least one. Most of the time, there were two people on phones. You couldn't talk to them. You couldn't address them. You couldn't say hi. How you? Hello. I don't think they can eat or sleep. I bet they turn that thing on and put it under the pillow when they go to sleep. I might miss something. Don't want to miss anything. Oh man! Ring. Ha! Whoo! I got another. I got another mail here. Whoo! Look at this picture. Whoo! Facebook City. Whoo! Tell me more. What's the weather in uh, Mongolia? <laughs> oh, what's the highest mountain in Indonesia? <laughs> Woo! Really important to know that. And yet, that Bible gets opened at home in your free time only occasionally. It doesn't have the allurement that it should have. And here's God drawing you to him and drawing you to his word. Come. Hamilton, Shelbyville, this book will keep you from the world. Or the world will keep you from this book. Amen. Bow your head. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that this year will be a Garden of Gethsemane year for us. That we will turn a corner and have a breakthrough, a spiritual renewing, a true turning to you. A true hatred of everything that weakens us and defeats us. I ask you to give us the strength and the courage to say no to the devil and say yes to you. To keep reminding us, Lord, that we were bought with a price. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to you. Do whatever you have to do, Lord, whatever it takes to keep us in the fold 
and to keep us in favor with you. I ask in Jesus' name. Now, while your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, before we stop and go home, are you willing, you're sitting here tonight, are you willing to surrender more of yourself to God? Are you willing to give up anything he puts on your heart that's dominating your life that you need to give up? Are you willing? Are you willing to let go of stuff that displeases him? Are you willing? If he shows you and talks to you, are you willing to let go of it? If your conscience begins to bear witness to this or that, are you willing to yield? See, that's when things become spiritual and when the joy of the Lord begins to take place. Are you willing to make that decision? If you are, just quietly pray to yourself there, Lord, give grace to me that I might overcome everything that is offensive to you. Lord, let us do that in Jesus' name. Amen.